0: This episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please support us on Patreon over at patreon.com geeks, or via PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com crowdfunding. And so I want to give a special thank you to Greg Reynolds and to Andre Bauer, who both just signed up to support us on Patreon. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so now let's get to our show. Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 542 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. I'm David Barr Kirtley author of the book Save Me, Please, and Other Stories, which is available now on Amazon.com. We had a great conversation about the book back in episode 500, so definitely check that out if you missed it. And our guest today is Bill Fawcett, an author and editor who's been heavily involved for decades in every aspect of book publishing and tabletop gaming. And in this interview, we'll be discussing his book Myth Interpretations, The Worlds of Robert Asprin, a collection of short stories written by Robert Asprin, best-selling author of the Myth Adventure series and co-creator of the Groundbreaking Thieves World series of Shared World Anthologies. And now here's our interview with Bill Fawcett. All right, so we're here with Bill Fawcett. Welcome to the show. Thank you.
1: Okay, so how did you first meet Robert Asprin?
2: Standing in line at a game convention. We were um, at a... game show in michigan and i was uh with mayfair games at the time it was 1980 i just joined the company and we were showing off some of our new products which i'd be embarrassed to even mention the name of today Hmm. and um this guy was standing just in front of me a big head of curly hair and uh, talking to everyone who went by it seemed and we ended up chatting and i found out who he was and, um, I'd already read a couple of his books, so we just kept talking. And by the, um, end of the evening, I was, um, putting him together and doing some games for him <laughs> based on his books for Mayfair.
1: Wow. So which of his books at that time had you read?
2: The Myth Adventures series and, uh, one called, um, Bug War. Bob did three novels before he started Myth Adventures and, um, before they made it big on Thieves World. Um, he did, um, Cold Cash War, Tambu, and Bug War. And, um, they were all sort of reflection of his mentor. Bob, Bob was mentored by another very famous author and guided to his early career by Gordy Dixon. And his first books were something that reflected Gordy's influences on him. They were, there were a lot of military aspects to them and all. And they were a lot of fun. And Tambu, in fact, was sort of a foreshadowing of some of his hobbies and life later on because it talked about basically a Genghis Khan-type leader in space, uh, leading a space fleet instead of the Mongols. So we met and um, chatted and got along. And, um, I was being a fan and he was a game player and I have been involved in early D&D and he was, they were running D&D games. So we, we had a lot to talk about that first evening.
1: Yeah, that's, that's really cool. I mean, I've never uh, read anything by Gordon R. Dixon, but I know he wrote the Dorsi books, uh, if people don't know at science fiction conventions, they would. They had. There was a group called the Dorsai Irregulars who would provide security for conventions, and so it was. It had been inspired by
2: which Bob helped run. Bob was one of the leaders, organizers.
1: Uh-huh.
2: In fact, it all started because of a disaster of a TrekCon in Chicago.
1: Okay, um, do you want to say more about that?
2: Well, a guy before people knew how popular cons could be, a guy decided to invite several of the original Star Trek mem- cast members in 1980 before there were a lot of comic cons and stuff, to the Hilton in Chicago. And he sold memberships. Now, the Hilton Ballroom holds about 3,000. So he was supposed to sell 3,000 tickets, and it would have made a nice profit. He couldn't resist. Hmm. And people kept buying tickets. Well, he hired a bunch of people that had been organized, the Dorsai Regulars, as a club. To be his security, because most of them were ex-military or interested in it, or just organized in new cons like Bob, and Bob was one of the leaders. And um, he kept selling tickets, and he kept selling tickets, and he had sold something like twelve thousand tickets for one hotel. Hmm. And it was it was um, it was called the Riot Con, and the door size job went from security to just trying to protect. The stars, the various talents, and being able to move them across lobbies and get them into elevators without them being madly gang because literally people were forty deep around the hotel just trying to get into any public space, and it was it was a terrible nightmare. It was frightening. And oh yeah, by the way, the guy who organized it skipped town with all the money. (laughs) The hotel didn't get paid. Oh man, and that's that was their first experience with security. And at that point, they decided cons needed security and will be the dorsi regulars and organize it because they couldn't be dorsi because they're in the future but they could be the irregular wing of it the regulars are like auxiliaries and that's why bob organized it
1: because i know bob had been in the army for a year right do you know really anything about that
2: um he was in the army for a year he medicaled out he had um back and and shoulder problems and uh According to what he would, I can only go by what he said. Bill, I wasn't a very good fit. Hmm. I understand what they were doing, but I wasn't what they wanted.
1: But it seems like he, he, he obviously loved military stuff. I mean, you oh. see that over and over again in his work.
2: Oh, he's a historian. He loved history and military is a big part of it. And he had great, great respect for the military and people in it. And he studied it and everything else. But he just, um he was a bit of um iconoclast or a person who questioned things. This is not the ideal personality for boot camp or after.
1: <laughs> yeah. And he had been, I mean, he'd been really active in Phantom for years before he started writing fiction, right? Do you kind of know, do you know a lot about that?
2: Well, we only secondhand. I did not. Know him that well in the 70s and fandom, except that he would, he would begun his going to conventions then, which later turned into his best marketing tool. We can discuss that if you'd like later. Um, and, um, he traveled a bit and, um, uh, really enjoyed it and became quite a, um, significant figure on the fan scene. He he, he he would, if he had not become a writer, he'd have been fan guest of honor at a lot of cons. After that. And um, Bob, Bob was also probably the most brilliant person for seating people at his table in the bar and hosting it for hours and hours. And everyone was entertained. And that continued from both his fandom days and his professional career days. And Bob was a big filker. He was very popular. Bob played the guitar. He sang pretty well. He would make up variants on other people's filk songs and other songs. And he was very popular. And, of course, he had that gift of gab, that glib patter he could put with his his filking that made him a very, very popular filker. And even in his pro days, when we'd go, sometimes we'd go to cons and share a room, um, especially after his divorce and he was saving money. And um, you would always get there about 11 and leave about two or so. He just loved the filking part of it. And he knew all the filkers. And he'd come back singing band on Argo and other great classics.
1: I know he's also talked about as being a significant figure in the early days of the Society for Creative Anachronism. Uh, What do you know about that? that
2: Yes, he was a figure. He was a personality, all right. (laughs) they he he was in Ann Arbor Michigan and they have a very active chapter up there and so um well before i explain what he did i should explain what they do okay, every sure. year they have a contest in a, a big gathering a tournament In Pennsylvania, where basically East versus the rest of the country and the nights all calm and they have these big giant battles and everything. And the loser has to take Pittsburgh for the next year next year into their side. And um it started, it got big. There there were times when there were four or five hundred fighters floating around there. Well, Bob got involved in all this and looked at it and said, Well, what's the rule? Well, the rule is, oh anything from the 10th to the 16th century. In other words, the Mongol invasion is perfectly valid, and they have to accept us. So he created the Horde, and the Horde were recreation of Mongols. So they had no alignment with anybody in no respect And he had a lot of friends from fandom by this point. So he had a whole spy network and he always knew what was going on in all the shires. And then he had about anywhere from 40 to a hundred, anyone pensick war that great battle. And they would sell their services to the side that paid them the most, mostly in telemore Dew and (laughs) beer. And they, Bob was um, the con of the, of the, of the horde the dark horde, they called themselves. And he would come and there would be things and he would go to sky events, but he would not kneel to the king or any of the normal stuff. He would come up, bow and go with all due disrespect. Hmm. And that was pretty much the attitude and the people in it had a great time and they were all good fighters. He had some of the top talent with him. So it was very popular for recruiting them. And, um, that lasted several years and Bob left and it went on a few more. And then it split into three groups, which weren't really antagonistic. we just geographically it worked out. And they were things like the strawberry horde and things like that, that, uh, showed that they, it, it sort of faded after Bob, but, um, he, he ran the horde, which when he was working at as an accountant, um, for a very stuffy, um, business machine manufacturer led to some fascinating phone messages being left for him <laughs> that drove the staff crazy
1: so so you so you met him at this um at this gaming convention, and then kind of how did your friendship develop sort of over the next year or two or three or kind of like what sort of interactions did you have
2: Well, first, it started with arranging to um do a board game and some modules um, Mayfair did a line called roll aids. And they were suitable for d and d modules and um we shared a bad sense of humor. He was better at expressing it, obviously, but we shared it and um so I did a module a special module called the aspirin tablet, and that was a quest thing that we did for a tournament and did a thousand of and it it was and we were basically promoting his product with our product and vice versa. Uh, the Myth Adventures books at this point. And by that point, also Thieves World had started to catch, and he was had left Anne and married Lynn. And then uh, we did another module based on that. And then I sat down and uh, designed a game called Sanctuary, which is based on the Thieves World series. And we had a lot of fun testing it and making sure it had all the little quirks and peculiarities that... um it fit. In fact, it got a Charles Roberts, the best game of the year award from Gamma that year. And, um, so we spent a lot, a bunch of time with that. And we also spent a lot of time talking and making great plans and figuring out how we were all going to get rich at this, that or the other thing. Most of them didn't work, but we had a great time planning them. We had a group called the B team for a while. And that's, we, that's who you called in if you had a crisis at a convention, because half the time conventions lose their staff back then and stuff. Um, I can remember sitting in the car with him and a marketing guy named Walt Barrick and a couple of other people. Sometimes Rich Peeny and you—you you know the song "Money," not not from the the play, but uh, um, from the Dark Side of the Moon album. It was sort of our anthem. We would sing it when <laughs> driving places while we were planning on what we would do to make ourselves rich. We spent a lot of time building sand castles and cloud castles and other thoughts. And we had a lot of fun doing some of the stuff too. And most of it did work. It just didn't make us all that rich. Worked out, turned out writing was much better for him.
1: Yeah. So I, I guess I'll just explain if people aren't familiar. So the, the Myth Adventure series uh, started off with uh, the book Another Fine Myth in 1978 and is a humorous fantasy series, sort of sword and sorcery slash. And it, it, it involves uh, aspects of like uh, parodying pop culture no. things like the Godfather movies and things like that as well.
2: Bob explained it very simply where it came from. It's a buddy movie like Hope and Crosby in a fantasy setting. It's Bob Hope is skeev and um, C- Crosby is the same talented one that can't ever handle the uh, skive. And so he basically was writing buddy stories because friendship and personal interrelations were intensely important to Bob. That was what he was about. The, the Making the money with people was to do it with people, not to just make it. And his books are about people. He, he loved watching people. He loved talking about people. He loved writing about people in all sorts of different situations. And with a wry sense of humor that was probably part defense mechanism, too. Uh, because of race and other problems back in those days. um, The myth books were basically a giant buddy story of these two and their friends dealing with the vicissitudes of very humorous problems in a fantasy world.
1: Yeah, and I, I talk a, a lot. The myth books were my just my absolute favorite series when I was a kid. Um, my best friend, when I was in about third grade, handed me uh, myth Conceptions, which is the second uh, myth book. And I just opened it and read the first sentin- sentence. And it says uh, something like, uh, the the worst way to be aroused from a sound sleep is by the noise of a dragon and a unicorn playing tag. And I was just so excited. And I kept trying to read the book. And the teacher kept yelling at me to put it away. Um, and finally <laughs> threatened to confiscate it if I didn't put it away. And I just waited all day long to... To run home and, and finish reading it because I was so excited. I just love those books so much.
2: They, they, as did we. That's why when I found out who he was, I was. By the time we got to the end of the line, I was. I'd already negotiated a license from him.
1: <laughs> and you, I mean, he was um, half Filipino and half Irish. And so, what yes. sort of pro, you? You said there was some. some well, he, racial
2: – he had darker skin. He wasn't dark, but he what we call brown today. And it, it did cause some racial profiling back in the seventies and even eighties. Um, in fact, he still had problems with it in New Orleans. When he died, um, uh, the late lady he knew who was going to accompany to a convention, the convention that he and Jody were guests of honor at, um, joint guests of honor, um, Jody Lynn Nye is later collaborator. Um, And they accused, they, they asked her outright if he was her pimp because she was white and he was dark skinned, darker skinned. And it was quite an insult. But that was, he, he had dealt with that in Chicago and then a little more in Ann Arbor, but not as much in Ann Arbor once he was older. But as a child in Chicago, there was a good deal of racial profiling and bigotry in Chicago. I'm from there and I'm, I'm well aware of it. Um, neighborhoods are still pretty, racially segregated in chicago it's surprising and bob was in effect of that and his father who was quite an interesting person um a martial artist as well bob was a fencer his father was a martial artist and his best weapon was the machete his father filipinos learned the machete and uh, his father had to feel flee the philippines because of an incident with the son of somebody important um, who tried to pull a weapon on him and, um, his father took his hand off and it became a good idea to go to another country after that with this machete. And so he, uh, came to Chicago and he spent a whole lot of time when Bob was young trying to convince the mob he didn't want to be an enforcer and to just leave him alone. And Bob distinctly remembers those conversations. He used to recount them with some bitterness even. And, um, and some of the things that in some of the neighborhoods of Chicago where he was a small boy with brown, cream colored skin, dark skin, Hispanic looking, because you know, he was half, half Filipino. And, um, eventually his father got so, t- had to, got so much pressure on him. They fled to Ann Arbor when Bob was about 14. And I think by then he'd learned to watch people a lot. And rather than go sour, Bob got funny and his sense of humor went all the way through everything he did. I mean, he had his, we all have our dark sides, but Bob, Bob had a sense of humor about almost everything and, and dealt with people with that sense of humor as part of his repertoire.
1: That's really that's really interesting that he had that firsthand experience with the mob. I mean, I mentioned that the mob plays a fairly large role in the myth series, and I always just assumed that was due to his love of of movies and you know gangster movies and stuff like that. So. No, no,
2: he he was raised in Chicago. Um, it's in our bones. <laughs> it's in our. We all are aware of it. Um, the country club near my house blew up three times before the Corrado brothers bought it. Um, it's just, was a fact of life in Chicago in the sixties and se- even seventies, despite what Bobby Kennedy said.
1: So, yeah, that, that's really, that's really interesting. And also, I mean, he, um, he, he, I, I think seemed very proud of his Filipino heritage. I mean, um, he, oh, he, was Filipino, um, characters and things show up in a number of his books. I think most notably to me is Fool's Company. Uh, there's a prominent Filipino um, character in that book.
2: Yes. Yes, he he, he he did. And almost every character he had was based on someone or something or several people into one. And um, that was as close as he got to putting himself in a book, I think. Although, if he wanted to be somebody, it would have been fool, of course, since his father was the fourth richest man in the galaxy, or <laughs> something.
1: So, so can you think? Uh, are there any examples that come to mind of like this character is based on this person or these people or
2: mything persons? The one where they they go to. Um, a, oh,
3: yeah, I, know, I know what you In the
2: kidnapping, say, yeah. um, the wolf writers, the wolf writers in it. Are the Wolf Riders, are Richard and Wendy Peeney. And there's a fellow in it, Wilhelm the Vampire Agent, who has a foam permanently attached to his head. Hmm. That was me. Oh, wow. And everybody in that book, every single person is someone from the group that we were around at that time. Um, And it was fun to pick them out (laughs) and to decide. You know, okay, that is such and such. And okay, and that, and he'd tell the person and get permission, but he, you, they asked you not to tell anyone else until at least the book was out so that uh, everyone could sort of discover it for themselves. Um, Tuckerizing is an old tradition. Um, if you, um, ever see a book called The Flying Sorcerer, which is, um, Ron Goulart. Every character in it's a science fiction writer. In fact, uh several of them are real obvious. The hero is as a shade of purple gray, as mauve, and goes from there. And so um, Bob followed that tradition and a lot of writers, if you look in his books, there there is not any of the first twelve books that did not have somebody in it that was either a writer or a member of the group or somebody hung with or the horde or whatever. And a lot of Julie's people were from the horde, dark horde. Hmm.
1: I mean, uh, somewhere online, I saw when you when you mentioned the Wilhelm, this reminds me, uh, it, it, it referred to you as his business manager. Is that a, an accurate? Uh-
2: I never took a commission, but I worked with him. On a, I read contracts. I helped him negotiate some things. Yes. And later on, I handled everything. I am still the executor of his estate.
3: Hmm.
2: So I handled a lot of business for Bob. Including his negotiations with the i r s after he got in trouble with them
1: so you were you were you you were the point man on that
2: yep, I was the one who was talking to the i r s to convince him to take a little money and ease off on him so he could start collecting on his books again so he could live
1: for people who aren't familiar with this at all, do you want to just describe that like what, bob what had
2: a that? little bob had a minor oversight it's public knowledge so it's a darker side bob sort of forgot to file taxes one year when he was uh making an awful lot of money on Thieves world like mid six figures in the early 80s and um they, it it and then he did fi- he he did fine, but then he was afraid to file the next year, and then the next year somebody sent a ten ninety nine in on him, and it blew up, and they hit him with enormous amount and penalties and everything else, and it, it's one of the reasons he went into a writer's block period that lasted a couple of years, um, and um, eventually. I had to go to the um, ombudsman of the IRS and say, look, this is what this is doing to this creative personality. What can we do? And they cut a deal that if I would give them this less than 5% and he'd file quarterlies from now on and be good, they let him off the hook. So they did. And he got some writing done. And guess who didn't file quarterlies a year later? And I had to go back and oh, God. did it again and he got off again. And um, it was a bit of a pattern with Bob. He he seriously resented paying taxes almost as much as Paul Anderson, I think. Um, and he once he stopped writing as often as he used to, it also cut back on income and he was always feeling like he didn't have money to put away. Um he always got by, and we made sure he got something, but a couple of times, in fact, at one point, um, I gave him a very large amount of money and bought the rights to the Myth Adventures books, the ones that existed at that time, from him. And uh, actually, I control those now before he died. But um the deal is pretty much that I controlled him, but he still got the income, and he still got sure. to write them and do whatever he wanted. Um Just... Once he died, I just had them. Um, and um, But he got by, and he, he was scraping sometimes in New Orleans. I mean, the last final tribute we held to Bob was at his his regular, the bar down the street that he used to go to and play pool at, and his friends were all at. This is before the hurricane pretty much destroyed the old New Orleans. And he Oh, when he had all this trouble and he broke up with Lynn, he moved to New Orleans just to put it in context, yeah. about, what, 87, I think it was, eighty before Katrina. Anyhow, several years before. And um, got very active. He was in a crew making floats and doing a parade, and he was had a lot of friends and a lot of writers down there then. And it was a much nicer city, too, a very different feel to it. And um, But he often struggled to make ends meet down there to the point where even – Actually, took a job once as a um, administrator at a timeshare building, but he couldn't take the salesman for very long and <laughs> left. <laughs> something, something about guys in checkered coats.
1: Yeah, I guess maybe I'll just explain for listeners if you don't know the the story. So he had married Lynn Abbey, who was a, a fellow fantasy and science fiction author, and they had collaborated together on the Thieves' World, correct? A, a very popular series of of uh, shared world anthologies. And then, and they were living in Ann Arbor. Um,
2: and and L- Lynn didn't yeah, know he hadn't filed taxes. He told her he had. And when it turned out he hadn't, and the tax bill came in for an enormous amount, they borrowed, sold the house, did everything they could to cover for at least a while. And she went, That's it, Bob. And he, Closed his office a month later and moved to New Orleans with three suitcases. Later on, she shipped stuff from his office down to him. But he basically decided he wanted a new start. And he always loved Noah. He always thought the city was friendly and colorful and full of ghosts. And he loved all those.
1: It's it's really interesting learning that, that backstory because in the myth books, there's the character Oz, who's just very... Um, you know stingy and always cares a lot about gold and just grits his teeth anytime he has to part with even a single gold piece and it's just you know it makes me think of that just hearing about how he resented paying taxes so much. oh
2: and, yeah, absolutely. Oz and Skeev are two parts of Bob i Oz is some of the darker and and but still with that tremendous regard for people and protective urge towards Skeev. And Steve is the free soul that Bob wasn't naive enough to be, but wished he was.
1: And the myth books, they did really well. My, I, I, I think they sold, I saw somewhere that they sold 3 million copies. I don't know if that's accurate or not, but they were very popular.
2: Actually, it's up to about four and a half. Okay. Over their time, uh, including Jody's. Uh-huh. Now later on when Bob was having trouble writing the myth books um or simply trouble focusing and down in New Orleans um he brought in Jody Lynn Nye and they collaborated on a number of books and it was an interesting collaboration um subtext Jody Lynn Nye is my wife uh, who had already written about 10 humorous books when they got together and they had a lot of fun writing those and putting together a couple of anthologies that I did with them, um, which has its own stories. And um the collaboration was different and often much closer. And um they would suggest things the other would write them, the other would write, and they they can exchange chapter he they showed he'd send chapters and he'd change things. And pretty much by the time a book came out, neither was very clear over who had written what anymore, Um, which is why people trying to figure out which parts of Bob's and which parts of Jody's get really confused because there aren't any. (laughs) It was a little bit of both in everything Um, and um, Bob's humor and Jody's um, writing and uh, punctuation um, and her humor. And uh, but it was Bob's style of humor Bob's humor, um, and they they just had a lot of fun doing it. And Bob Bob really enjoyed uh, getting more books out and uh, supervising. And you'll you'll notice in those that uh, anti-establishmentarian trend that Bob had continued. The the villains are often the government or an organization that needed to be gotten rid of or thwarted. Or an evil character who had to be thwarted. Um, because that was, that was always Bob's attitude that, uh, if, if he, if he had been born earlier, he would have been the purple pumpernil or some sort of, uh, some sort of dashing figure with a, with an ape and uh, driving the authorities crazy.
1: Yeah, and I'm I'm definitely interested in talking to Jody. I I figured I would uh, when I saw that there was this myth interpretations um, collection that you edited. I thought maybe I would do as we were saying, as as I was saying to you, maybe we can do sort of a two part episode. So first I would talk to you since you've known Bob longer, and then I would uh, talk to Jody to get her perspective on all this, which I think is you know is really interesting.
2: Well, Um, Jody and I met in '85. I'd known Bob about five years then, and he was in our wedding party oh wow i mean in 87 when we got married he was part of the wedding in fact the other the other guy that marketing guy walt barrick was the best man and uh basically there was th- the couple of people from the gaming companies were there it was a bit of a fan wedding but not really it was a jewish wedding with 200 a quiet little sit-down dinner for 243 but
1: oh wow
2: yeah they go on ahead. it wasn't <laughs> meant to be but like I said, but the sweets table was good. Anyhow, Bob had a lot of fun because Bob was um uh, in a tux and being dashing the whole wedding, and that was excellent. He was always at his best when he had a stage. Um, and Jody and him pretty much were friends long before she they started writing together, and then after he died, Ace asked her to continue writing. But I'll leave her to tell those stories. Yeah. I I, I will only steal the best one of them all. <laughs> okay. They were at a Dragon con, oh, sometime in the late nineties before Bob you know years before Bob died, and one of the collaborations I think the second or third collaboration came out, and there were several hundred people in a small assembly hall, and um one of them asked Bob and Jody, so who writes what and they looked at each other and smiled, and then Bob looked at the audience and said. I write the consonants, and Jody went. I write the vowels, mm-hmm. and they hadn't planned it. I know they hadn't planned it. I've been with them. <laughs> it just that was the way they thought.
1: That's great. Do you, do you want to talk about this myth interpretations collection? Just uh, uh, set that up for the for listeners.
2: Well, we were at uh, a point where why it came to be is two reasons. One, they offered money, and B, there there was a period. Of about a year and a half, when no myth book was coming out, uh, Jody had was doing a series of books with Ann McCaffrey, so she couldn't um, do any more myth a uh, myth book for almost it was almost a two year gap. We decided we ought to bring something out for the fans, and there were four or five short stories that Bob had written earlier, and um, Jody did a so we decided we'd do this because it's quicker to write a short story than a whole novel. And so Bob actually came up to our house in um, Wakanda, Illinois, a suburb, not the one from the movie, um, not that Wakanda, <laughs> um, and um, and stayed with us for about two weeks. And um, to be honest, he diddled a lot, and it ended up with Jody and me. Sitting in chairs behind him while he sat at the computer writing, and then us going, "Oh, that's good, Bob, keep going until he wrote his original story for it um and then we looked over and put together all the others and then Jody did a story, and he went in, "Yeah, but change this and this and this <laughs> and she did, and eventually we were able to gather from the stories he'd written for various things um this whole anthology um And it's it's theme is obviously a Myth Adventures anthology, and if it had a sub theme, it would be Ozinski's tripping and finding a gold in the pond every time, because that's what they did, and that's what the books are about. These are they're optimistic books, they're happy books. Not only do the good guys win, but sometimes the bad guys turn around or get fixed, like Big Julie. Um, and become part of the heroes instead. Because Bob was always one who thought that, uh, with a few exceptions, villains were misunderstood. And if you understood they thought they were the heroes, maybe you could turn them into real heroes. And that's a theme in a lot of his books, if you read them carefully. Um, Miss Marker. Marky ends up a devoted ally for the rest of the series. And she was the con woman in the card game. And um, I don't... I would have to speculate as to why he thought that way, Um, possibly because he had just a little of the con in himself, but he thought of himself and was a hero. And so he wanted that to be the world. And if he controlled it, then it would be the world. And he did control those.
1: So this book, Myth Interpretations, that I read, so it starts out and it's got uh, about four myth stories. And then there's a a selection of other things. So there's stories from the Merovingian Knights. It's the um, CJ Cherry um, Mm -hmm. series. Uh, There's two of his stories from the Thieves World series. Um, And then there's there's all sorts of sort of odds and ends and and things.
2: Yes. Yes, there was a demand from the market. And let's see. What inspired it? A $20,000 check yeah (laughs) that's what inspired it and then we had to find things that he had written or she had done that fit in it and it would sort of fit in what was going on there and so that that's really what did it it was um wasn't a scramble because by the time we got done we have more than enough material it was what we did and then we wanted each of them to have an original story in it as well
1: Let's, let's, let's talk about Cold Cash War. This is the original novelette that appeared in Analog Magazine in 1977 that um, Bob expanded into his first novel, The Cold Cash War. Um, yes,
2: that, that's very much a reflection of um, Gordon Dixon's influence, which is a good influence and really immense difference in his writing, big improvement in his writing over the three, four years that Gordy was working very closely with him. And the idea is that in the future, um, can you say Wagner group? You replace the armies with corporate armies, or you have specialists and warfare because it's too horrible to do all over the world. Um, current example, obvious, um, become stylized much like the Codeteri, or which is what it was modeled on, the Italian mercenaries—they they would one city would hire one, another city would hire another, and they would fight, and casualties would be in the dozens with twenty thousand men involved. And then the one who got the advantage, the other side said, "Ah, okay, we're surrounded. You win." And everybody went home, and they ceded a village or some sort of commercial rights or whatever. Well, when companies had a dispute and the world is run by the international companies, the big mega companies kind of don't say it bill, but yeah, Bob, Bob figured it out, saw where it was going. And, um, those, the mega companies, they don't fight each other economically anymore because it's too damaging. What they did was they hired and created their own mercenary armies who met in set areas that were like an island or an isolated area to achieve certain goals in which other whoever's mercenaries wins, gets the contract, won the dispute, had it settled in their favor. So in a way, it's the two champions in a modern setting fighting it out to see who's, who's the, who is righteous and God approved of. And it, it came from that too. And so he tells a story of a mercenary who's good who's fighting in this type of war who is dealing with corporate and dealing with fighting with it and the corporate side of it came from his being an accountant for a company that made copiers i won't say xerox
1: <laughs> well and they sort of do this thing in this in the science fictional world they do this thing where since the corporations don't like to lose money they have the the soldiers wear these um suits that have a sort of laser tag kind of system where they can disable each other, and then they they just um, plant bombs and and they just demonstrate. Oh, I could have blown up your warehouse, and so you have to transfer me the co- the, the value of the warehouse or something. But we're not actually going to kill anyone, and we're not actually going to blow anything up because not we don't only,
2: want. not know. only that, but they make money on each one by selling the television rights. Remember,
1: <laughs> uh, so I, I, it okay. it
2: literally is. Like I said, you 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 have injuries and accidental deaths, and every once in a while, someone goes rogue and actually shoots somebody with a pistol they brought. But generally, it's set up to be a giant laser tag war. And by the way, Bob was very good at laser tag.
1: Yeah. Did you you wrote some sort of follow up to Cold Cash War? It was called I Cold
2: Did Cash a, Warrior. Cold, Cold Cash Warrior, which is a chosen path adventure. Where you are the character of this cold cash war, and you had to make decisions on an assault um It was one of the first things I wrote Bob, Bob laughed at me a lot, and it it basically took all the technology and basic idea, and you could do this or do that or do this, and if you made the wrong decision, you're dead, and you have to start over or just play from where you were or whatever and it had about a hundred and fifty sections to it and Cho- chosen path adventures are challenging on one level because you have to sort of tie each plot element into several things but they don't go wide it's sort of like f- you write everything so it'll feed back to the same point or your book would become a million words long hmm. Hmm. so it get, you 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 go through and if you make all the right decisions it's just more efficient Um, and it, it's explored the character and it did a lot about would you do this or would you do that? And it, it's the same kind of decisions you get in officers' candidate school when you do your field exercises.
1: And so was Bob um, – was, was it mostly he, he had the concept and you wrote it, or were you kind of going back and forth on anything in there?
2: He, he said, yeah, go ahead and do that. Thank you for the license fee. <laughs> and then I sent it to him, and he didn't change any of the military actions but he changed some of the he changed a lot of dialogue and attitude uh, when he took it and then sent it back and said I know your name's on it bill but do it this way <laughs> and i said let's see you're a best selling author i have four <laughs> books out right now yeah okay <laughs> so we did and it came out it was a series called combat command from ace and we did about 10 of them all together including um starship Troopers and bu- a bunch of uh, big names from the times. Um, uh, Pornell's Janissaries. Um, a lot of just text fighting and science fiction. Yeah. Wars.
1: Yeah. I also I also wanted to ask you about Thieves' World. I mentioned that there are two Thieves' World stories in this uh, collection. Um, just kind of what was your? You were around right when all the Thieves' World stuff was going on. Just kind of what was your experience with with that whole project?
2: Um, my experience was I was friends with almost all the writers, but it was staffed by the time, um, Jody and I got married. So there's no more slots. Now she wrote for the later ones that Lynn did. Um, and it sort of wasn't, it was just a good idea and let's try it. And it took off like a rocket. The original Thieves World book, Thieves World shocked everyone with its sales and Ace rushed back and said, "More, please. We need more. Here's a multi-book contract. Here's lots of money." And Bob spent lots of money and didn't pay the taxes. But anyhow, <laughs> and um, um, and um, it was a coordination of some of the top talents out there. And we would meet. They would meet, and I I was friends with virtually all of them because by that time I created Bill Fawcett and Associates, and a lot of them were doing books for me. Um. A package for publishers, um which means I arranged series and hired authors and stuff, not putting them in boxes um, <laughs> and um so i we would go to these and they would hold an annual meeting, and everyone would decide what they're going to do and there was a lot of personality conflicts in it um, and it was reflected in the stories uh Janet Morris and another author. Could not stand each other, and their characters escalated, wiping each other out or almost wiping each other out in the first six books every time. So that they started as a thief and a soldier, and they ended up as demigods fighting over the city huh. um, because each was trying to one up each other constantly. In fact, in order to protect his character, one author made made his character immortal. <laughs> um, there were complications from that too after they'd they'd signed a four book contract with ace bob and lynn who co-edited it and lynn did a lot of the work on that by the way lynn was a great organizer and a good editor and giving feedback and all and um bob and bob inspired thoughts and people bob got them to no do this you'll like but they got one and i do remember probably the most dramatic meeting they had it was right after all the stories had come in for volume four and three stories came in one where the two characters i was just discussing fights over the city as demigods and level and destroy sanctuary killing everyone in it this volume four
1: <laughs> okay
2: And then another one contracts
1: for more books after this. Yeah. They had, they
2: had a seven book contract at the seven book contracts up to seven. And this is four. (laughs) And then another author had a magical plague hit the city and decimate it, killing 80% of the people and showed all this horrible stuff. And then a story came in from. C.J. Cherry, who loves to do absolutely realistic stuff, her her mercantile books all use technology and star maps that are absolutely accurate and could be today, sublight speed and everything. And um, she had the harbor silt up and everyone's starving to death and the city falling apart because all the money's left because it's no longer a trade city. There's no reason for anyone to go there and only the bare remnants are there. And... We we always called it afterwards the Sweet Savage Silt Meeting. <laughs> um And Bob called everyone in and basically said, they had their annual gathering. In fact, he they flew everyone in. There was enough money in those days to fly everyone in to Ann Arbor. And like 10 people met. And Bob stood in the front and was going, you can't destroy sanctuary. It's the Golden Goose rewrite your stories and he's telling janet morris and cj cherry and all sorts of people four stories out of ten you have to write a completely different story we can't use what you gave us and as far as i know none of those stories has ever seen daylight since um but it was writing her writing hurt on writers you had about a dozen very talented very individualistic writers each with their own character to write about Working very hard um, to make their character more important than everyone else's, um, and not to let. And you could use someone's character if you didn't kill them, and that's a lot of license. So, it, one story ends with one character being tortured by another character, and that's the immortal one. That's how they got even. They put him in a lifetime of, tor- of future, uh, infinite future of torture. Until she got to the next one, where he breaks out and kills everybody, except he couldn't kill the villain, the other villain. So it went on and on. So there was a lot of personality involved.
1: Because I never read the whole series, but I—that's uh, what I had sort of heard—that it sort of spiraled out of control because of these these cycles of uh, retribution by the authors. And so then, how did that? How did it end at that? Because it ended with eight, I think, initially. Like how did how did it stop? Why did it stop at that point?
2: Uh, it ended at that point. Um for a number of reasons, including Bob and Lynn split and weren't working on it together anymore. And Lynn carried on for a couple of volumes, but uh wanted to just it was taking up all her time and she wanted to do her own books. Um and so um I think it went on there's more than eight books. I think it went on to ten or eleven. Um, but what eventually I, I'd have to look, I haven't read them. Well, they they came decades. back.
1: There was a gap of, you know, 10 or 15 years or something, I think. And then they came back with, yeah. Like Lynn
2: before. brought them back from tour, but she put, brought them back 30 years later with some new characters. Jody was in those. Uh-huh. Um, and, um, they, they basically didn't have a, dis- uh, a hard ending. Because it wasn't known if there would be a nine or a ten at one point. But the contract didn't come and time had passed on, and um Bob and Lynn both moved on their own direction to other things.
1: Hmm. I'll say, I mean, in the in the Thieves World number one, it has an essay at the back by Bob describing how the project came about and all the travails mm-hmm. and, and things. And it that one ends in um in the myth book, uh, it's called Myth Inc. Link. He has an author's introduction about how he came up with the myth series and got it published in the first place and everything. And mm-hmm. those two are just hands down the best author's introductions I've ever read in my life. I used to just read them over and over again. He just makes it sound so much fun. Uh, it was. Being a writer.
2: It, it really was. I mean, I, I, I tell you how hard we worked and how we banged our heads to get the words. Down. It wasn't. <laughs> He had a ball. Lynn had a ball. Jody had a ball. Um, They are by far something that were well-received and uh, fun to write. And because of the very nature of it, you could get away with almost anything and did. And then you got to mix your people in, and it just had all the right elements. And I've always always maintained uh, with all the books I do and everything – the writer's got to enjoy doing it or it's going to be a bad book. And those were books that everybody enjoyed doing every time. I'll give you an insight on the myth books I bet you haven't noticed. Do you notice all those quotes, those fake quotes at the start of chapters? Yeah. You notice they're not in front of all the chapters, just some of them.
1: Yeah, I guess I never noticed that. I mean, it's been about 30 years since I read okay. the, the myth Okay, well,
2: books. go back and open one up and you'll see a secret. Those quotes are only in front of chapters that Skeev appears in.
3: Hmm.
2: All through the books, including Jody's, if Skeev doesn't appear, there's no quote. Huh? No reason. Just happened to it worked out that way in the first one, and kept going from then on.
1: Because, because I know he complained in, uh, in in that essay I just mentioned. He complained about. He's like, I never would have uh, included the quotes if I had been thinking that I would have to do them for you know ten books or whatever.
2: Yeah, he basically put him in um, to show off for the editor Susan Allison, and because um, she liked that kind of thing, and it caught on too well. And by the end, we were there. Are several beer inspired quotes that were <laughs> created during conventions because it was it was getting crazy by volume ten or eleven or so to. Put another dozen or 15 quotes in. And if it's a ski volume, it could be 25 because Bob did short chapters too. See, part of the fun of writing those books was things happen quickly. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's no, there's an overarching story, but things happen quickly. So his chapters are normally 25 to 3000 words long. So even in a 70,000 word book, there's 25 chapters sometimes. And if there's 25 chapters, if schemes in all the scenes, he's got 25 quotes to make up, and that can take longer than writing two or three of the chapters.
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh. <laughs> um, yeah, because actually, when I was a kid, I wrote a lot of Robert Asprin pastiche kind of stuff, and I would have those chapter quotes, and I discovered even back then how much of a pain it was after a while to to keep coming up with those quotes. So oh I yeah. Definitely... Oh yeah,
2: they were they were fun after you did them, but. You probably, each quote probably took a half hour to an hour to figure out, reject, do the next one, figure out, reject, find one you like, do it there, and then find two you like and go back and throw another one out and put that in another place. And they should sort of vaguely react to relate to what's in the story, too. Yeah. So that was an extra effort to make, each, make them right.
1: Yeah. I was curious. so I've always wondered about this. So I was curious if you know the answer to this. So, you know, one of my other favorite aspirin books, it's called Fool's Company. It's sort of a, um, a humorous science fiction army kind of story. And so on the, um, the version I had as a kid that I have here actually with me, uh, this is the, the blurb on the inside cover. It says, there are a handful of military rejects led by the biggest fool of them all, Captain Willard Fool, Threatened by an alien enemy, Earth's military has decided to send Fool and his misfit soldiers to a distant planet where they can't get into any trouble. But now the aliens have chosen a new target of war. Guess who? Which is actually a very uh sort of fun, appealing blur, but it has nothing whatsoever, as far as I can tell, to do with the plot, the actual plot of the book. So
2: <laughs> cover blurbs are written by people who haven't read the book from the marketing department at the publisher. Bob didn't write that.
1: Yeah. So you think I don't know if you you don't know any 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 more than it's just somebody never read the book in the marketing
2: department. The PR people would write those. They were normally it was an entrance entry-level job for new recent college graduates who wanted to get into publishing. And that would be one of your first assignments is write some cover copy. That or the editor would blow it out in an hour. Um the whole cover copy, all of it. Um and normally the editor. They would get a summary of the book from the publisher, and then write a cover copy from the editor, and then write a cover copy in marketing.
1: Uh huh. Yeah, because I always wondered if maybe he had uh, given them a synopsis and then had completely changed what the book was about in the process of actually writing it. But
2: it no, just... Bob never submitted a synopsis. Bob didn't work from an outline. Bob started writing and then Bob stopped writing. <laughs> the book is done. Here it is, but if you, you he would tell you what it's about but his contracts read myth adventures book 4 myth adventures book 5 myth adventures book 9 myth <laughs> adventures book 11 there there were no titles there were no themes it was go do something bob make us money
1: cuz they seem to be i mean like the myth books all seem to me i mean i can't tell that he was making them up as as he went along they seem to all kind of be, be pretty, you know, solidly plotted and come I, together by the end and everything. I
2: didn't say they were random. I said that he would he he knew where he was going to go. And he would have some ideas of what he wanted to do, but he never worked from an outline. He literally had it in his head. And then as he continued, and I, I write too, and I understand this process. As you continue, you get to a certain point and you decide what will do what I want next that will work best. And that's what he did. And Bob was disciplined enough to not cheat at it. You get some bad books where they cheat and they just throw something in halfway through the book to make it work. Bob always kept it fair from the beginning. He had a—he could tell you a five or six sentences about a book before he started it. But he couldn't tell you what would happen in the book until he wrote it.
3: He was a very natural talent. And he got
2: some of that from Gordy, too. Gordy taught him story arc. And taught him the fact that if you look, Skeev matures in every book. I mean, a good book character goes from A to B and changes. Skeev matures or learns a life lesson in every book. And that's sort of part of what it's about, too, which is why they make great YA books.
1: Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a scene that's always stuck with me. I forget which book it's in. I think... Maybe mything persons, one of the ones around there where um uh Skeev has he's expecting Oz to be angry with him, and actually Oz is sort of um uh sad or something, and he he confides to Skeev that I uh I sort of view me view you as my son and when you uh I I, I worry I sort of failed you as a parent. And it's always just stuck me uh stuck with me, just how um you know, sincere and, um, you know, sort of emotionally resonant that is in the series that's, you know, has all these hijinks and wacky stuff and puns and everything, but also has this really solid core of, um, you know, emotional, um, yeah, sincerity or something. Yeah.
2: Bob had two children. He understood that and he felt it and it's reflected in some of what he did. And Steve was definitely, a mentor and student or father son kind of relationship. Um, um, and all of it. Um, remember, Skeev is like 110 year or Ogs is 110 years old and a demon who lost his magic powers on page three. Hmm. Um, so yes, yes, it's, that's very much realistic and very much. And Bob was very attached to his characters. All of them. From Masha to Skeve to everybody
1: And also just in uh, in the in the book Mythnomers and in Perv where you know Skeve you know he Oz has become his best friend basically, but he doesn't really know anything about his um his history and he finds out all these you know, he he visits Oz's home di- dimension uh per yeah, perv um, goes from diva to perv. Yeah, and 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 meets, you know, his Oz's mother and, you know, his old uh schoolmaster and stuff like that and finds out all these things that explain why Oz is the way he is. And that also, you know, just seems so um emotionally resonant to me.
2: Yes. Yes, those humor doesn't work without pathos and it doesn't work without rea- with without emotional depth because then it's slapstick. And Bob wrote humor, and his humor came from him, and there was pathos in his life and humor and good things and bad, and romance and divorce and romance and romance and romance and hmm. spurting and bob-like ladies um so yes, no, and one of his talents was he could pour it right back onto the page and let you feel it too.
1: I'm just seeing, we're almost out of time. I'm just seeing if there are other, um, any other pieces in this collection that I I particularly want to talk about. I mean, I I think one of the ones that struck me the most is called the Ex-Khan. And the premise is that there is sort of a, a, a military history buff and he meets Genghis Khan in hell and they have a conversation. And it sort of ends with and this, this guy is just upset, the, the main character, the, the narrator is just obsessed with Genghis Khan and knows everything about him and can't wait to to volunteer to be one of his, you know, uncle Horder or whatever. And Genghis Khan rejects him and says, you're kind of a, a dilettante. I don't want you. I don't want your services. And yeah, it, it seems like because which sort of was an ending that surprised me because um, I, I was assuming that the main character was sort of modeled on Bob. Uh, so it was interesting that he has Genghis Khan sort of. No, rejects. Bob no. was Genghis Khan. Okay, in that story. Okay, that's interesting.
2: Bob was the Kakan of the Dark Horde. Bob was modeled in, in, on Genghis Khan. There, the the historian was. Basically, the thousands of fans who had pestered him and driven him crazy all <laughs> over all his life. I, if I had to speculate, but he, we never discussed it. That was written for Heroes in Hell, a series, of, um, put together by Janet Morris, where um, basically historical figures interacted in hell and competed. Mm-hmm.
1: That's that's, inter- that's interesting. Yeah, that that's uh, okay. That he's the. <laughs> He's the Genghis Khan in that. That's, that's actually, that's really funny. Um, yeah. Uh, I also, I just want to mention, because there are two stories, that I think, that involve so, sort of science fiction conventions or science fiction fandom. You have uh, the story Khan Job and The Capture. Uh, you say The Capture, you say it was uh, infamous or something, notorious in fandom. Do you want to talk about about that? Mm, I i didn't say that. <laughs> Sorry, uh, but- what do you mean by infamous? In the introduction, uh, let me see I'll see if I can find that thing. Uh, uh, Bob wrote the script from the Phantom Notorious slideshow, The Capture. Uh, generously, so you describe it as Phantom Notorious.
2: Oh, okay. It was a production that was put on at conventions for about 10 years, off and on, by, by a group of performers, voice people with slides in art and it it, it was famous notorious or whatever you want he had he, he had written they had asked him to write a a short script um about this um about it i don't want to give away the plot in case people want to read it but um basically it had been presented with a with about seven voice actors on a regular basis every year at two of the michigan cons they did it every year sort of like um other movies that they play at midnight or whatever, every Saturday, Um it would play annually at cons and the group would get together and perform it. And it was done at three or four different cons for about a decade before the performers basically all went their way and got too busy. So it was it was. It was notorious for being a place where you all went and it's eventually you could yell the lines out (laughs) (laughs) before the, when the slide came up, before the person could say them. Uh, And of course, his last story was in, uh, Here Be Dragons. Bob wrote that for me, which was all set at Dragon Con. Um, died a week after he turned it in. Two weeks after he turned it in um first thing he'd written that year too he was having a hard year and then um his uh his heart stopped to sleep apnea whatever got him laying on his couch waiting to be picked up to go to a a convention in ohio um where he was going to be joint guest of honor um he wrote that um and it's the last words he, uh, ever wrote, actually. Um, and it was, it was a tough time when we lost Bob. It came as quite a shock. We both Jody and I did not go to the convention. We got on a jet and flew straight to New Orleans to help clean up everything. Um, that was a year they had no guest of honor at the on. They were very nice about it afterwards. Um, and we went down to, um, Clear out everything and settle all this stuff. And his kids were there and several of his friends. And we did what we had to. And the final thing we did before we broke up is we had to go down to his regular and clean up his bar tab. (laughs) Now, the final thing I did is pay for his drinks.
1: (laughs) Because you say in the introduction that some of the stories in this book were kind of. Unpublished stories that you found in boxes as you yeah. were going through his stuff.
2: Yeah. Um, several of them were, um, three of three of them were, I think. Um, I, when we cleaned out his place, I inherited all his working notes, five boxes, which I have since donated to the Northern Illinois University archives, science fiction archive. And there were some unpublished works in them. The, Various things. And anything that looked even vaguely publishable is in that. So there isn't a lot more to say about that other than it was fun to find them and put them together into this book. And there's probably. Thirty five thousand words of new stuff in there that he had done before. For various reasons.
1: Yeah, no, it was like I said. I haven't. It's been about thirty years since I had read the aspirin stuff. You know, I sort of fell out of it when um when there was that big gap you mentioned where nothing new was coming out. So it was really fun for me because I had read the Cold Cash War and Thieves' World and you know the Myth books, obviously. So it was really fun to sort of pick up this book and and be reminded of all that stuff and and read a bunch of things I'd never read before. So.
2: Well, it sounds like you've got a treat coming because there's four or five collaborations and three more by Jody that you haven't read yet.
1: Yeah, no, I, I'm definitely looking forward to reading this. I mean, I didn't even realize that, uh, you know, he had, he had written, I had read Mythian Improbable and then I'd sort of, you know, fallen out of it. But even that he had written one called Something Mythic, I never read. And then there's all the collaborations and everything. So, yeah, I'm definitely kind of curious to get back into it, see where the story
2: Something uh, Myth Death Inc. Earth. is very unique because it's not Oz and Skeev, it's the Myth Inc. characters.
1: Uh-huh. It's
2: all the group that were the company in the, in the bazaar there.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, no, I'm definitely looking forward to getting back into it. And, ta- and like I said, talking to Jody, I think that would be really fun. Um, I was going to mention, I mean, that these stories, uh, I mentioned Conjob and... Um, uh, and what was the other one called the capture the capture I just, I just felt like um you could feel his love of science fiction fandom coming through i mean the um the premise of con job is that there's these thieves and they're looking to to rob the convention, but they all end up having so much fun at the convention they sort of
2: absolutely uh, are, are
1: distract yeah
2: Bob loved conventions in fact bob Bob's success was based on conventions, if you think back in the seventies and eighties. There were no. It was no internet. There was no way to get known besides advertisements, magazines, articles. And we gathered together and did conventions. And Worldcon was much bigger than it is now. We had 10,000 people, 12,000 people at a Worldcon in Chicago in 80. Um, it, cons were where you met your fans. And Bob looked around and went, I want to be a success. I need to make money at this if I don't want to have to get another job again. Um, I always want, he could just write. And so he took all the money he'd made from the myth books and some of the money he'd made from the, uh, these world and stuff. And he went to anywhere from 15 to 25 conventions a year for five or six years. And when he started doing that, he was a mid-level writer that some people really liked and a little quirky. By the time he had gone to 150, 200 conventions, and he was such an outgoing personality, you had to have that first, and um, held court and entertained everybody and just became so well-known, people were all out buying his books. And so, believe it or not, it's the um, second of the Dragons books that he got the call. Bob, your book's a New York Times bestseller from Susan Allison, the editor. Um, but he built his career by being one of the fans, by being known to the fans, mixing with the fans and being part of them. And he never lost that. It was a golden age of cons and we all loved it. Also pretty much a wild era for drinking and sex and several other things that he enjoyed.
1: (laughs) Well, well, yeah, because it's interesting because I mean, yeah, there was no internet back when I was reading these books. And so... I've never really known any, you know, other than my personal experience reading them. I never knew a lot about him or, um, you know, other than what was in the books, but, you know, other or other people or so it's just really interesting for me to be able to talk to someone who who knew him and hear all these these stories that, I, you know, I would have, you know, would have killed to find out all this stuff, you know, when I was a kid and there was just no Internet. You couldn't. If, it's just so hard to find out this kind of stuff.
2: If you had gone to a con, you could have gotten them talking. <laughs>
1: Yeah, no, I'm so cuz I did go to a lot of conventions, um, you know, in the early 2000s, early mid 2000s, so I could have theoretically run into him. You know, I went to like a hundred conventions or something, but just somehow never crossed paths with him. So, I'm really uh, yeah, that's uh I regret that uh, I never had the chance well, to talk to him.
2: I'm I'm glad I can be a bit of a substitute for you. <laughs> he was a great friend and uh you know, we all it left a gap. We all miss him and it left a gap.
3: Yeah,
1: absolutely. Um, So uh, are there any uh, Robert Asprin other upcoming projects or uh, anything else you want to let people know about that if they like, you know, if they're if they're curious to check out Robert Asprin or if they like his writing that they should look into?
2: Uh, Nothing new until next year when there's Jody will be bringing out the first new myth book in five years. And she's about halfway through that. We may even try and experiment and self puppet. Um and um other than that, I think I would just get the books that are out there and read them. They're in most libraries, you can get them online. Um we're moving publishers with the series, actually. They were they have been at a small publisher and they're likely to be listed pretty soon, um, probably starting in the maybe the end of the year. Depends on how long they take. On com's sales site from Bain books. Mm-hmm. But other than that, um, find him, read him, enjoy, laugh with us. Um, and, uh, understand that, uh, he, he's one of the reasons that we always felt good that we could be silly at cons because of the humor that Bob brought us.
1: Yeah, you know, in his introduction uh, that I mentioned in Mythic Link, he says that, you know, his his first agent, when he proposed the myth books, said, humor doesn't sell, you got to write something else, which is what, um, you know, set him to writing The Bug Wars. And then the myth books turned out to be a big success and sort of changed the minds of publishers that about, um, you know, the commercial prospects of humorous fantasy. So that's really cool, because I really liked a lot of humorous fantasy growing up. I mean, the myth books and then Craigshaw Gardner and uh and others and more stuff so um I always want there to be more humor and uh well so read it's, Jody's it's nice books. <laughs> that, yeah no I definitely will and that's that's really cool that uh, that there's a new myth book coming out. Do you have any idea uh when next year? Because that would be a good um you know good to schedule an interview with her um when that comes out.
2: Um I I really can't because there there's a complication on um her co author. Eric Flint died and suddenly a small project has turned into a very big one and it's delaying everything. So I really I'd be hesitant to make a promise to the public on a date at this point, because one, I might be wrong and that would be unfair. And two, she's my wife. And if I do it, (laughs) dot, dot, dot.
1: (laughs) Yeah, well, I'm flexible. So just uh, I mean, we'll be in touch, I guess. And you can just let me know. Uh, keep me yeah, I, w- I will let
2: you know. And if you want to talk to her more about Bob and working with Bob in the meantime, she I know she'd be thrilled and happy to do it. Also working with Anne McCaffrey, if you want to throw that in, because she did six books with Annie.
1: Yeah, no, there's a bunch of stuff I'd be curious to talk with her about. I mean, I heard in interviews with you that, um, you know, she was one of the er- early TSR employees. I mean, there's just a lot of, I think, uh, oh, topics yeah. that, that I'd love to hear about.
2: Oh yeah, great irony there. I I was working part time for Dragon Magazine in a little house, and she was dating the president of TSR in the big big warehouse factory that they had, and so we never met. And the one time I <laughs> saw her, I said, "Oh look at that, a girl under four hundred pounds in fandom," and they went, "It's the boss's girlfriend." Back away. So it was ten years later before we met again. At a science fiction convention, by the way. But she did have a lot of involvement with it. Well, she was 19. She needed this summertime job. So they paid her a dollar a page to type up the handwritten notes and, and get them ready for correction and everything by this guy, by Gary Gygax. And it turned out to be the DMG, the Monster Manual, and the Player's Handbook. She spent the summer typing them at a dollar a page. Um, and basically, so the ideas are Gary's and the grammar is Jody's. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. I mean, I definitely would like to get the whole story from her. And, uh, so definitely, yeah, let's definitely keep in touch and, and, uh, listeners can, uh, you know, keep an eye out for that in the future. My interview with Jody Lynn and I. Um, but I think we should start, start wrapping this up. Uh, Bill, are there any other, any other final thoughts or just anything you wanted to mention that we haven't gotten to?
2: I think we have pretty well covered, A lot of Bob, he was more than just a humorist. He was someone that when you got done dealing with them, you felt good. Bob had that skill to talk to a crowd, but talk to each individual in it directly. And it was fun to be with him. And... There's always a smile and nostalgia and a little bit of healing the loss because someone like him doesn't come along very often. And it's shown in his books, and it was shown in the Friends, and we all still remember him very fondly. Even those he died owing money, we remember him fondly. (laughs) (laughs) You know, but but he was the kind of person that – could tell you he was going to con you, con you, and have you enjoy it so much you didn't care when he was done. That's what that. That's just it was that much personality, and that kind of open soul that he just involved you, and he always he he, he worked with a dozen writers in his life. He worked with all sorts of strays. And and tried to help them, particularly once he moved to New Orleans. He was like the, the father confessor and godfather to, uh, I can't tell you how many, including a number of now successful singers and other talents down there. Uh, when he was there, he was just that kind of guy. So,
1: Yeah, and, and I just feel like that comes through so clearly in his work. It just has such such warmth and humor and personality and wit. Um, yep.
2: Yeah. If you read his books, you know, Bob, there's nothing else there. No dark evil, no, no deception. If you read his books, you'll know Bob.
1: Yeah. Well, I think that's a perfect note to end on. So why don't we wrap things up there? So we've been speaking with Bill Fawcett about his book, Myth Interpretations. So Bill, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me.
0: And that was our interview. So big thanks again to Bill Fawcett for joining us on the show. This episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy was made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please support us on Patreon over at patreon.com geeks, or via PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com crowdfunding. Alright, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com.